Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. On today's show, we'll be talking about training others to be physically fit. And to help us understand this area, our guest on today's show is Sean Supon, who has started his own business called Range of Fit that helps people to be combat ready fit. Yes, combat ready fit. And let me explain why that makes sense. So Sean is an ex-US Army officer. He went to West Point from 2002 to 2006. And for those of you who aren't familiar with West Point, it is one of the most coveted military academies in the United States. In fact, in order to get in, you not only have to apply, you also have to receive a nomination from certain members of the U.S. government, such as a member of Congress or the President of the United States, if you know him. So yes, it's very hard to get in. Once Sean graduated from West Point, he was in the U.S. Army for around five years, during which time he was also posted in Iraq for a little over a year. During his time in the Army, Sean won many awards, including the Bronze Star, which is awarded to members of the United States Armed Forces for heroic achievement, heroic service, meritorious achievement, and meritorious service in a combat zone. Once Sean returned to civilian life, he got his MBA from UT Austin. He worked in consulting and he also started Range of It, which, now that you know Sean's background, you can put the pieces together, trains people to be combat ready fit. In fact, if you check out Range of Fit's website, uh, it's at rangeoffit.co, that's R A N G E R F I T dot C O, you'll see some pretty crazy videos over there of people doing some fairly weird-looking and fairly tough-looking exercises as part of the program that Range of It has. Sean comes with a lot of experience and a lot of passion for working in this space, and on today's show, he'll be sharing a lot of details with us to help us understand what is involved in working as a physical fitness trainer. So, with that, let's welcome Sean to the show. Hey, Sean, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for that nice introduction. You, you, I mean, you have a brilliant background. I mean, I knew that you were in the Army, but I didn't know that you were posted in Iraq for so long. Well, it was my study abroad program. I see. Okay. So that must have been quite an experience, right? Uh, you, you could say that. Um, so I deployed in uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, right after the Golden Mosque bombing, where the sectarian violence exploded between the Shias and the Sunnis. And so we were posted in Baghdad, West Rashid. And it was just an absolutely fascinating time to be there. Um, can't say that enough. Uh, good things and bad things, the whole range. Yeah, I mean, can you share anything that comes to mind? Any, any stories or any incidents? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously coming uh, over there as a young second lieutenant without a lot of, like, international travel experience, 
I came with a bunch of preconceived notions about kind of why we were there, who we were fighting, how the country looked, tasted, smelt, and felt. And over the course of a year, I came to realize that most of my preconceived notions were like incredibly simplistic, if not completely outright wrong. And I came away from that experience really just with a positive a positive view of the Iraqi people as a whole and a little bit disillusioned with why we were there and how narrow our mission focus was and whether we were going to leave a lasting impact or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you could, I could talk about that all day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is uh, such a crazy thing. And I, I mean, I guess it must have been pretty hard being there. Were you, were you actually in combat at any point? Uh, yeah, so when I first deployed, I was a member of the infantry platoon. So I was a um, second platoon leader leading the infantry platoon, and we were stationed on a little square of asphalt that used to be a parking lot in the middle of the city. And we began to fortify the position with T-walls, which are gigantic concrete structures that you put up. They're basically just barricades. And so you barricade a perimeter around the pad and then you set up your sleeping areas and your motor pool for your vehicles and your ammo distribution centers all within this little pad so not it was just a company out there so 120 people not a big presence at all Mm -hmm. and our mission was to constantly be out there on the streets whether we were mounted or dismounted mounted means we're riding around with our armored Humvees, or dismounted just means we're walking as a unit. And so in the few months that I was in that position, we probably probably did four or five patrols a day. We would do some that were very short, maybe for a focused effort. Maybe we got a report that we had to go somewhere. There was shots fired. We had to go respond. Um, We had to go uh, recover a broken vehicle. We had to go... Uh, recover a body, what have you. And others were much longer where the goal was to just be present in the space. Mm-hmm. Be seen, be heard, be felt, talk to the people, make them know that you're there and you're not going anywhere soon. And those could range from an hour to half a day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a few months, ended up doing five or six missions a day, seven days a week. And over the course, you know, we were shot at often, several times. Oh, wow. Um, which, I guess we're just lucky that the aim was never very good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, everything turned out fine, though. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, thought, I thought it was very safe with mm-hmm. all the force protection measures that we had yeah. and our tactics. Yeah, I'm just amazed, um, you know, because when I speak to someone like you and you know, anyone who has such a background in the army, how do you go from something which is so intense? I mean, it it is intense in the truest sense of the word, and you're literally facing near-death experiences. And then you go back to something which is so normal and so boring as civilian life, right? Like, how does that even work? The number one thing that I credit my military experience with giving me is perspective. It gives me so much more perspective on what's actually important in life, 
where your goals should be, where you should focus your efforts, what actual danger looks like, and what you should be afraid of. And that has been a huge benefit uh, throughout my entire life. Mm-hmm. And it's always funny when I, you know, I, I obviously work with and talk with people that don't have uh, military service, and I always think the perspective part is the primary difference. Can you, can are, you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, you know, obviously people from a military background and people not from a military background probably have a fair amount of differences, right? Just as if, you know, you're from Canada or the United States, there's some differences and a lot of similarities. The perspective part is really interesting because your perspective, the way that you view the world, the way that you prioritize things, wants, needs, desires, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the way that you evaluate and measure risk, reward, and danger, and the way that you experience fear and overcome fear are all driven by your perspective, this, this broad concept I like to call perspective. So when you're brought up to the brink over the dark abyss and you look down and you see the bottom, you now have a perspective where things in the past or things in your day-to-day life no longer sound as loud. Everything's a little bit more muted, a little bit more mellow, because you realize that the actual range of experience is significantly broader. The intensity of fear, the intensity of danger, the intensity of stress, you know that you're capable of so much more. And so when you know your boss is hounding you for a project, it's okay. Nobody's going to die. It's okay. So it, it puts everything in perspective, right? It helps you kind of silo things into the buckets of yeah. how you should respond to them. Yeah. So yeah. instead of breaking down and freaking out when your boss is on your back about a project, you know, just cool, calm, collected, do the best that you can do. Don't lose a wink of sleep over it because it's not a big deal in the long run. Yeah. So would you say that you're much more zen now? No, I, I get angry all the time. Um, <laughs> so, so, no, I'm not more zen, but I do think I have a much better perspective over being able to measure kind of the risk-reward stuff. I, I, I can still get mad just like anybody else. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I feel like we should do uh, another completely different podcast with you just on your experience in the Army, but <laughs> let's get yeah. to combat ready fitness then. So. Okay. So before we get into range of fit, why don't you tell us a little bit, like, you know, just a brief summary of your background and your journey so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, there's not that much to tell. I was born and raised in Hawaii. My parents had moved there prior to my birth and settled there. They still live there today. I mean, I grew up in a, you know, a loving family, went to public school, kindergarten through the end of high school. And then when I was 18... And I had to choose what to do next. I decided that I wanted to go to West Point. And uh, the actual process took a little bit longer, so you can back that up about half a year. But began the application process and had to do the interviews with the senators and the, the representatives, had to do a pretty exhaustive medical physical exam along with a, a fitness test. All that in addition to the typical things that you would see in a college application. After some fits and starts, got in, went to West Point in New York for four years. I've experienced my first winter 
which was miserable. <laughs> also, I know, the, coming from Hawaii, yes. Yeah. Uh, not to mention the natural demeanor of West Point was very, very different than the laid-back island style that I was used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots of adjustments kind of over that four years. At the end of the four years, graduated, was commissioned as a second lieutenant, um, and then started kind of the military journey, which was a mix of training, education, and deployment overseas to Iraq. When I got out in 2011, I want to say, I went to get my MBA at the University of Texas, Austin. Loved Austin, was stationed at Fort Hood, which is about an hour and a half north there, fell in love with the place. Found a nice little condo, figured, hey, this is a great way to spend two years and decompress kind of from the last five. And it just had a blast. MBA, if whoever's listening, like if you have an opportunity to get an MBA at some point in your life, do it for none other than the fact that it's it's a great two years. You have a lot of fun. You make a lot of friends. Friday's off mostly. It's it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So got the MBA. Took a job with A.T. Carney, management consulting firm, where I met you, Sonali. Yep. <laughs> um, and still there today, as of now anyway. So just kind of living life. Living in San Francisco, the Bay Area, love it. Love the, love the salt water. I love the hills. I love the wine country. I love the redwoods. California is number two on my list. Number one, of course, being Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when did you start Range of Fit? So when I got out of the Army and I entered into this MBA program, I I started missing some things out of the Army much like right away. There, there are other things I still miss today, uh, but they took a lot longer for me to start missing them. You know, bad, bad experiences get better the longer your memory goes back. That's this is true. strange. But yeah. the one thing I really missed was the physical fitness group atmosphere where, you know, in the military, we used to always at 5.30 or 6 a.m. have an entire unit-wide formation, and then everybody would go off and do group workouts with their smaller units. So, you know, when I was a platoon leader, I would go out and my – platoon and I would work out together. When I was in staff, I would lead the entire battalion staff in physical training. And that physical training would be anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. So, you know, a fair amount of time. And this was every day, Monday through Friday. When you're overseas, this usually depends on kind of your unit rotation, whether you're actively engaged or whether you're more um, support. But by and large, this is the one kind of common denominator in the military is that we all wake up early and we all work out early. That's it. So I miss that. I miss that a lot. And so what I started doing was I started working out just by myself. And I really quickly got lonely. I missed the camaraderie and the companionship and that sense of shared suffering uh, <laughs> that was so prevalent in my military experience. And so I started recruiting my classmates to come with me and it started in ones and twos. My roommate was the first one to come with me and a few other folks got on board. The next thing you know, we had like a pretty solid group Mm. and you know, a lot of them were pushing me like, Hey, you know, this is great. You're doing this for free. Love this concept. Let's, let's make this bigger. 
let's blow this up. You know, let's brand it. So that's kind of you know, that's where Ranger Fit started. So started in kind of you know late 2011, and just it began as me creating a brand and creating a format for groups of people to work out in the same styles and ways that, you know, I learned kind of in the military and have since kind of evolved through education and understanding other realms. That was kind of the genesis. So what was your pitch initially when you recruited friends of yours to come and join you? You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a simple man. I, I just challenged their, manhood or their womanhood if they were a woman I said look you know you talk a big game everybody says that they like to work out everybody says they want to do it everybody says hey I want to eat right I'm like well you're not what you say you're what you do so let's go do this meet me at this location at this time wearing this stuff with this equipment and we're going to go we're going to go get it done we're actually going to do what you say you want to do that's pretty much it. I mean, that works with 90% of the folks. And the ones who that doesn't really work with, they're, you know, they're not the ones that are really going to come in anyway. Hmm. Okay. And and you call it combat-ready fitness, right? So can you talk a little bit about what is so special about the training that you provide? Yeah. Uh, so when I was growing up in high school, so participating in a bunch of different sports. I loved surfing. I loved um, football. I liked paddling out rear canoes. Um, I liked hiking. And the only sport that actually had a fitness program behind it was football. And the fitness program behind football was go into the gym and do whatever you wanted with dumbbells or barbells and heavyweights. And none of us knew what we were doing. I'm still amazed to this day that I could walk because we were idiots and we didn't have any education and no supervision, just didn't even know what we didn't know. And when I go to college at West Point, all of a sudden I'm surrounded by an entire school of people that are incredibly physically fit, but usually only in certain domains. And what I mean by domain is a certain area or, or direction, right? A, like a direction of travel. So you had people that came from kind of a cross-country background and were absolutely fantastic runners. You had people from the track team who were either throwers and just incredibly strong or sprinters or jumpers or runners um, and kind of you know ranged between kind of being anaerobic or aerobic athletes. Then you had kind of the football team, obviously same concept as high school, but everybody was kind of doing, they were doing sport-specific training and the only general preparedness training so we have a term we call general physical preparedness, GPP. It's kind of like laying the base, the base functional movements, the base conditioning, the base strength levels that you would then kind of build on to layer on sport-specific strength and skills and training. All everybody did in the military was they would run two miles. They would do two minutes of push-ups and two minutes of sit-ups because that's what we got tested on. That's how we were measured against each other. And that was pretty much the base of most people's regime. And I bought into it. I did that. I went into the gym and I did bicep curls and tricep extensions. I used all the machines. Like, you know, I didn't know any better. I was a kid. So now, I, now I've finished that and I go to my unit. And all of a sudden, we don't have access to fancy machines or gyms or anything. 
and we have to train whether we're in Kuwait, Iraq, or Fort Hood, Texas. And so really quickly, I had to come up with different ways to do that in what I would call an austere environment, an austere way. I mean, it is just you just don't have access to all the, the frosting that you would normally have access to if you were going to your gym. There's no equipment. There's no heat, no AC. There's no water. You just got to go out and do it in the harshest conditions with nothing available. So that's kind of where that, that nugget of the combat-ready, austere training ethos came from. And then as I branched out and more passionate about it and started learning more, I got into Olympic weightlifting, I got into powerlifting, I got into kettlebell sport, I got into gymnastics, I got into pilometrics, sprinting, and basically just expanded my knowledge base. And all of that, take elements of each of those and throw them into a package that would just destroy you in a progressive manner so you can still Mm -hmm. get better and get stronger over time, but would train you in a way that it would just make you faster, stronger, and more durable. And in other words, kind of combat ready. Like if the worst possible thing happened and you had to react in a violent, swift, and deadly manner, you could clear that five meters between you and the door, no matter what was in between you. And that's kind of the goal. It's just general purpose, get your butt moving, be a dangerous object kind of fitness. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's combat ready fitness. Okay. So uh, can you give examples of any exercises which are very unique to what you do? Yeah, so in the fitness industry, I, I'd be careful about saying that there's anything like unique. I, I do think a lot of this stuff has all been done before, whether we kind of have history of it or not. I mean, the human body is pretty old, and I would venture to say that our, our Paleolithic ancestors would probably wipe the floor with us, even <laughs> the best trained of us. But one thing I've always really liked is the combination of outdoor, so doing workouts outside the gym and doing workouts that involved a range of pathways. So whether you're doing kind of the short distance kind of anaerobic pathways, which can take you from anywhere from kind of zero to 60 seconds, maybe to the aerobic pathways where, you know, you're doing a series of high intensity, high power, short movements but they're spread out with rest intervals over the course of 20 or 30 minutes to really challenge both systems as best you can. I think doing things that put you in an uncomfortable position, like bear crawls, doing things that just absolutely suck the, the vigor out of any person that has to do them, like buddy carries or hill sprints. Oh my you know, God. Or, like you're uh, carrying someone while you're going up a hill? Right, yeah, just... You can literally kind of come up with this stuff as long as you always stay centered on is the workout going to be effective? Is it going to drive the desired change? Is it going to push the desired boundaries? And is it safe in the sense that nothing is 100% safe, but is the risk-reward ratio in favor of doing the exercise? And so there's a lot of exercises out there that would be good, like better than doing nothing. But if there's a strong risk that they're going to hurt you, 
then that doesn't make sense. You shouldn't do it because an injury is going to take you out of commission for a long time. So just to clarify some of the terms that you mentioned, uh, when you say an anaerobic versus an aerobic athlete, what does that mean? It has to do with the metabolic pathways that your body fuels activity. So the aerobic zone is a zone of kind of the effort that you're putting forth that is relatively low intensity, but you can do it practically all day. So a perfect example of an aerobic athlete would be a marathon runner. Okay. An anaerobic, an anaerobic workout is something that is testing that power, the explosiveness, the absolute strength at levels that you can't maintain for uh, excessive durations. And it's all driven by the substrate energy levels within your muscle tissue. So you have a set amount of ATP, right? And that burns out very quickly when you're putting in maximum intensity kind of effort into something. So you can't do it. You can't do it for very long. And so an example of that would be like an Olympic Olympic weightlifting clean and jerk or a snatch, right? It takes maybe a second to execute the lift. And in that second, you're expending a huge amount of effort, energy, and intensity into that bar to get it up. So those are kind of the different pathways. And then you have things that are a mix. So fighting, grappling, boxing, they're a mix of the two modals because when you throw a punch, you're putting, unless it's a, a feint or a jab, you're really putting your, for lack of a better term, your ass into it, right? It is, a, it is an anaerobic expression of your strength. But most of the fight, you're dancing, you're ducking, you're weaving, dodging, dipping, right? So mm-hmm. that is the aerobic pathway, not to mention the length of a fight. If it's a 10-round boxing match or a three-round UFC fight, a three-round, five-minute uh, UFC fight takes 15 minutes total. That is a that is a tough that is a tough workout. So that's a mix between the two. Right, right. So I want to spend some time on the fact that you that you're not only someone who is very interested in physical fitness and then was looking for a group to to train with. You're formally a trainer who helps others become physically fit, right? So. So first of all, like, do you think that there's something special that you need to do to train others as opposed to just do your own physical fitness regimen? Yes. So to be a good trainer doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best at doing what it is that you're talking about. Oftentimes, the best trainers aren't always ex-gold medalists, right, in whatever the sport or domain is. The best trainers are the people that understand it, are absolutely passionate about it, are smart because a lot of this stuff requires you know, a little bit of reading and a little bit of learning, and you want to be as science-based as possible. But most of all, just really passionate about teaching and helping people. And so when I kind of exited the military and I no longer had a group of people that I was responsible for training anymore that left like a hole left like a a gap in my 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 soul something that I sought to fill and the way that I sought to fill it is through just kind of basically exporting that concept into render fit so now here I am leading a group of people with the same kind of end goal in mind only we're not in the military anymore and we're taking kind of the best things that I learned 
and we're applying it to get people stronger, faster, more durable. Yeah. And are there different training styles that exist? And do you have like a specific training style? Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends. Uh, I think, you know, everybody you talk to probably has a different answer to this one. I would say that there's, well, there's one way that you can think of it, and that's splitting into two camps. There's the camp of the trainer who stands and watches and comments, and then there's the camp of the, the trainer who's really just the lead participant in the group. So they're doing a lot of the, the motivation and coaching, but they're also actually participating in the workout or the exercise. So that former group, the one who's more detached, that would be a great, like your Olympic level coaches fall into that camp 100%. There's not a single Olympic weightlifting coach who is knocking out sets of snatches with their team. Like that doesn't happen. And that is probably like the elite level coaching. Like this is the person that is looking at every single movement of every single joint in their athlete, probably focusing one at a time and really dedicating kind of their entire concentration to it without actually participating in the exercise. Now, I'm in the second camp. I think there's room for the detached focus, that specific observation that you can have, the, the dedicated focus that you can really drive towards, little tweaks here and there. But I, I'm a huge believer in the camaraderie of group exercise, um, and that's the way the military has always ran. Nobody was ever just standing there telling you to do push-ups outside of basic, right? You all did it together because a unit that fights together wins together. And that's always been my mindset. So I, that's my kind of camp. But I think both camps have their place. If you're taking a group of people you don't really know and you haven't done workouts with them and you haven't evaluated their health, you haven't evaluated their uh, movement patterns, if you haven't evaluated their like functional capabilities – and then you do a workout where you just, you know, you're just doing it and you're not really paying attention to what they're doing, then you're not helping them. You're putting them at risk and you're not teaching them anything. Right. So yeah. each has their place. Yeah. Uh, are there any uh, trainers that come to mind that you particularly admire? I'm trying to think of a trainer that I've worked with that I really admired. There was a guy. There was a guy I worked with at Fort Hood um, when I started getting really big into the CrossFit phenomenon. And the guy was much older than me. He was a major at the time. I think he's lieutenant colonel now. But he he was aggressive and he was intense, and he expected everybody to be as aggressive and as intense as he was. And he didn't always win workouts, but if you factored in his age. He did. He did really well. Um, but he pushed people. He pushed people to be better. And I think that's always one of the underlying responsibilities of a trainer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned is that one key trait of a good trainer is that he or she needs to be very passionate about what they're teaching and really know it inside out. So when you started doing this, what kind of resources did you use to learn more about what you were teaching? I've always been a voracious reader. I 
so in college when I started getting big into the bodybuilding kind of scene, you know, I bought dozens of books by Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Wider and all the other big names in that scene at the time mm-hmm. um, and just pulled them all together and just read them, just read them all the time, loved it. Do you uh, remember the names of any of them? Uh, yeah, so Arnold Schwarzenegger has an encyclopedia of bodybuilding that is probably one of one of the best in that genre. And then there's a few others. I got one got one by a guy named Weider, W-E-I-D-E-R, and I can't remember his first name. I have no idea the title of the book. The titles are almost completely nonsensical, right? Like it's almost all just it's bodybuilding exercises and pictures. So <laughs> Um, and that was probably my focus area when I was in school. But then when I got to my unit and began to kind of expand my knowledge and move away from bodybuilding, I got more into kind of the functional fitness. I think CrossFit was really growing at that time, and CrossFit introduced me to all sorts of concepts. I started getting big into Olympic weightlifting. I got big into powerlifting. I started reading a lot by a guy named Mark Ripito who wrote Starting Strength and a few other really good books. I got big into nutrition, so I started moving away from what was highly recommended at the time, which was a very high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet, and started moving to a very high-fat, moderate-protein, very low-carbohydrate diet, not different than the ketogenic diet or the paleo diet of today. Mm-hmm. And then as I kind of continued in that path, that's, you know, the internet got big, that little thing called the internet. And so I started reading online a lot. Yeah. And so there's some fantastic stuff out there. Like Mark Ripito again comes up. There's some great Olympic weightlifting resources like Hook Grip, Iron Mind. And then I thought CrossFit Endurance was pretty interesting for a while, which applies some of the high intensity training principles to endurance sports which, you know, wasn't as common back in the day, but it's more common now. Mm-hmm. So that's, say, preparing for a marathon, but never running more than 10 miles in preparation for it, but working through intensity for a shorter distance. So that stuff is really interesting. There's a great there's a great gym called, oh, man, what is the name of the gym? So Mark Twight runs it. I'm a... Uh, if it comes back to me, I'll, I'll bring it up. But he's the guy who got a lot of publicity for training the actors of the movie The 300. You know, oh, the wow, one where yeah. Gerard, Gerard Butler, like, heel-kicking folks into holes <laughs> yeah. uh, with painted abs. So he, uh, Mark Twight, oh, it's called Jim Jones. That's what it's called. Okay. Jim Jones. And that guy's methodology I liked a lot. I also liked the group that started out as Mountain Athlete and they were designed to train kind of mountain athletes, skiers and snowboarders and extreme hikers and climbers, and then expanded into military athlete and started tailoring their program towards military law enforcement crowd, which that stuff is right in line with my thought process. So I learned a lot from them. Right, right. So when you started Range of Fit, and, and I understand that you started this in business school and you just sort of started out with your friends to get that initial group to work out with. Did, did you ever consider joining, let's say, I don't know, like a gym or something that already existed and joining them as a trainer as opposed to starting something of your own? 
You know, I, so I did train, um, I trained folks while I was still in the army. So outside of kind of the official PT block, I also volunteered at the CrossFit gym and I got CrossFit level one certified and I was a trainer there and I liked it. It was fun. I, I think the difference was with joining a gym is that you're just, you're just an employee, which, you know, I, I don't, I've, I've learned now after enough time especially out of the army that like, I don't enjoy being an employee for anybody. Mm-hmm. So that was always kind of the drawback to that approach. <laughs> I don't think many um, people enjoy it, but anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, in, and I had Ranger fit when I was in uh, the Combs business school for two years. So what, while you were setting up Ranger fit and it was still in its initial stages, did you face any challenges as it started growing and you were still trying to make it a more of a sustainable entity? Yeah, the first challenge I had was the, the decision about whether to try and make money off of it or not. Uh, that was the big challenge because when I started it, it was 100%, 100% voluntary, 100% just pro bono, just you know, kind of wanting to share my knowledge, help my friends. So I never never charged for a single workout session. Right. And you know, I liked it, and I've never really never really changed on that. I still don't have any plans to do that. I'm happy if people are just getting better and they're learning and they're getting stronger, faster, more durable. I do think that there's always been an opportunity to kind of expand the brand into different things. So whether I could ever dedicate more time to it, you know, whether there's certain kind of equipment or apparel kind of correlations that you can begin to expand into. We sold uh, T-shirts and shorts for a long time, mm. and if you looked at the pictures, you can see the kind of shorts we sold. Yeah, they're uh, called Ranger Fit panties, I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so in the in the military, we have these. There's a, a rough rule. The rule is: the shorter your shorts are, more badass you are. And so, the special operations community and the Rangers have the shortest shorts. And kind of when I was training. Ranger school, I was like, I love these shorts. These are great. They're super comfortable. They're airy. You get a little suntan on your thighs. <laughs> these things are perfect. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been a big fan of those. And I decided those were the official shorts for Ranger Fit. Right. Um, so what we did is we bought a bunch of them and branded them and sold them. And they sell like hotcakes. In fact, there's probably like three or four or five different entities out there selling these things on the side. Oh, okay. uh, they're very, very popular. Okay. Um, and then we also did t-shirts, which I think are always fun, but we didn't really, you know, we, there's a lot of opportunities for stuff that we just didn't really pursue mostly because of lack of time and a lack of desire to monetize. Right. Right. So apart from challenges or not, not challenge, but more of, um, sort of figuring out how to monetize and whether you should even try to monetize any other challenge you faced. Yeah. I was really worried about the transition after I left Austin to come to San Francisco about how it would maintain and continue on. But apparently without good reason because it's continued on just fine. So it turns out that we've been lucky and maybe this will stop one year, but it turns out that there's always been somebody who's just gotten the bug in every preceding or sorry, every kind of um, following MBA class who decides, hey, I like this thing, I love this thing, I'm going to do this next year, 
and run it. And so we've always had a transition where it just gets passed from year to year to year. Right, right. You know, this is a very interesting point because I'm sure there are other people who are interested in training and they might not be able to pursue it full time. And it seems that you have somehow found a way to create something which is now a self-sustaining entity which you can get back to when you decide to. But it, it's still sort of going on on its own. So how have you done that? And who is training these students right now? So there's a current MBA student who was, who I actually have never met because it's been so, I'm so far removed now from business school that our paths never crossed. So when I left, I handed it down to a buddy of mine who was a year below me and was a big participant. And then he handed it down to a buddy of his. And then that buddy of his handed it down to this other guy whose name is Brendan, but like I, I've never met him. Um, who runs it and, you know, follows the same kind of protocols, the same overall objectives, goals. They do it in the same location. The times get adjusted depending on class schedules. But, yeah, it's still kind of continuing. And then what was the first part of that question? No, I mean, I mean, that was the question, which is that if there's someone, some other person who is interested in training, but for some reason they're not able to pursue it full time, how can they create something which is a self-sustaining entity? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I think I like to think of Renderfit as this option. It's an option that I'm keeping in my back pocket. So clearly right now, given the nature of consulting and where my time is mandated to be spent, it's not something I can execute right now. But if I can maintain the option, then I'll always have it in my back pocket. And so that's kind of what I've been doing is kind of keeping it going, trying to maximize, maximize result for minimum effort, right, to kind of keep it alive and keep the brand. But by and large, just kind of keep it in my back pocket. Now, I love the idea of trying to monetize it and come up with a product or a service that people would be really happy to pay for and then treating that business as kind of what Tim Ferriss likes to call a muse which is like a cash flow business that, that is something that, you know, you understand, you're passionate about, but really the primary purpose is it throws cash into your bank account every month so you can mm-hmm. focus on other things. But any per, any person that wants to get involved in the fitness or nutrition or space, that kind of space, that area, strength and conditioning, you know, what have you, you just make sure you're scratching your own itch, right? Make sure it's something that you're like super interested in because that's got to be a, just a, a boring job if you aren't actually personally interested in it. Can you imagine going to a gym and like watching a bunch of people just flop around and sweat over <laughs> each other? You have you have to be you have to be in it. Like you have to really enjoy that kind of thing to make this work. Right, right. All right. So let's get to some of the more day to day aspects of being a trainer. So what are the kind of problems that you would typically solve on a on a regular day? I think movement patterns are always a struggle. So everybody kind of comes from their own unique history, right? They come from different sports. They come from different cultures. They come from different activity levels. They come from different um, strength and flexibility positions. So for me, the one of the big challenges anytime you get a group of people together and you're either doing a new exercise or you're doing an exercise that people haven't perfected yet or you have new people and you have no idea what they're going to do is always to get everybody on the same page 
with kind of task, condition, and standard for each exercise. So this is the exercise. This is what a properly executed version of the exercise looks like. These are the clear points at which you have to hit in order for this to be a successful rep or repetition. And getting everybody to do it right in front of me and then following up with them and hounding them throughout the workout to make sure that they're continuing to do the right exercise. An example of this could be we're doing squats and somebody's not going below parallel or somebody's knees aren't tracking their toes or somebody's arching their back and caving their chest in or their butt winking. So there's all sorts of like little physical cues that you have to follow. And uh, it's not always easy because like some people get really irate uh, when they're at 180 beats per minute and they're, you know, they're seeing, they're seeing through that, that door, you know, that black door <laughs> that you get to when you're really pushing hard and, uh, and all, and you come in and you interrupt them and you're like, Hey, you no know, chest up. No, that doesn't count. Do it again. Right. Uh, yeah. So not everybody always, uh, is like super happy to like, just, you know, do it. Sometimes people, especially I argue with people, but uh, it's always fun. This is also the reason why my wife will never work out with me again, is because <laughs> she is just not the kind of person that enjoys that atmosphere, kind of mutual intensity. <laughs> yeah. One way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is a very interesting point because you will be working with people of all kinds of fitness levels, right? Um, how do you sort of get into their heads that hey, you know, you can do this. Yeah, uh, well, you bring up probably the, you know, the next biggest problem outside of physical ability and constraints, which is mental ability and constraints. So I am never, I am never impressed with somebody who says they can't do anything. Like for one, most people have no idea what they can or can't do. They only know what they've done before and what they think they can do. And I will tell you, you give me, you give me some time with somebody and we will we will push that envelope and we're going to grow your perspective a little bit because most people come in and they just have no clue how much pain how much intensity how much power they're capable of and they're just it's like everybody comes in most people come in with a governor they have a governor on their engine and the governor restricts their output to what they think is the right, what they think is what their possible range is. And my entire job is to rip that governor off and show them what they're actually capable of doing. Yeah. And is that something that you were just always good at, given your military background? Or is that something that you developed over time? Uh, I mean, we, so in the military, um, in the military, we, we have always prided ourselves on being able to withstand extreme amounts of punishment and continue moving. That is the entire ethos that I've kind of grown up with. And, you know, I try and instill that in everybody that I spend a fair amount of time with. Like, this world is not for the faint-hearted. The meek shall not inherit the earth. You have to be aggressive. You have to be willing to push yourself in your body, in your mind, way beyond what you think is possible in order to be successful. Because there's a lot of people out there who are more than happy to take your lunch right out from under you. And they're, they're training right now, getting better, getting faster, getting stronger, working harder, doing extra work. It's, 
whether it's corporate world or fitness, that person is there. You know, in the military, we always called them Abdullah in the cave in Afghanistan. And while you're sleeping or while you're having that beer, while you're going to watch that movie, he's out there, he's cleaning his AK, and he's thinking of different ways to kill you. So what are you going to do about it? Hmm. Don't, like, you know, don't be an easy target. Be harder to kill. Yeah. Be strong. Be fast. Be durable. Be prepared. Right. Yeah. So what do you think are the most interesting aspects, in your opinion, of working as a physical fitness trainer? I guess the part that I like the most, again, is tied to the fact that I'm passionate about the concept anyway. I personally am very invested in my own fitness, my own nutrition, my own health. And so I'm naturally interested in the entire topic. And so when it comes down to learning more about it, like I'm scratching my own itch, right? I'm doing something that I would do for free. And I pretty much am with Ranger Fit. Mm-hmm. So being able to follow something that you're truly passionate about and being able to get better at it and learn and to be building your skill set in a way that's actually something that you would you would actually pay pay somebody to help you do, which is very different than what most people do for their job, right? So I think that, like that, the fact that I'm scratching my own itch is passion. And I also, you know, I talked about this a little earlier, but the that feeling of having camaraderie, of shared suffering, of shared progress. I'll tell you, if you if you suffer with a group of people, if you suffer in a way that you've never suffered before, like you break all sorts of your personal boundaries and barriers and you suffer with a group, you will be closer to those people than you will be to anybody else in your life. Some people would say they're family. I would say if you go through, if you go to hell and back with a group of people, you are going to be much tighter with them than even your own family. That's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. But that camaraderie that's built through that concept really fills it fills an important spot in my heart and my soul and my happiness and so that has always been one of the reasons why I've been so passionate about continuing this beyond the military right and are there any aspects that you find challenging of working as a trainer yeah, I think number one is sometimes it's like sometimes it's hard to get out of bed right so <laughs> When you're a trainer uh, or you're running a company, there are going to be days that you just don't want to do it. And you have to because you're obligated. You said you're going to do it. People are expecting you to do it. You have to perform. But that's not unique. It's not unique to fitness except for the fact that when we get out of bed, it's earlier. And when we go outside to do our job, it's cold. And it hurts, and it's hard. <laughs> I guess that's probably the only unique part. Mm. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit to someone who is potentially interested in becoming a physical fitness trainer, or at least they're interested in physical fitness. In your opinion, what kind of person do you think would enjoy himself or herself to work as a trainer? I think number one, the person needs to be passionate about fitness. Personally, like they need to be completely invested in their own fitness and their own knowledge of fitness and their own knowledge of nutrition in order to be successful. And then two and less important, but they need to be 
really get something out of helping people because that's the job. You're helping people be better. You're helping people achieve their goals. And so if you're not personally invested or personally passionate about it and you're not excited by the opportunity to help people, I don't know how you can be really successful in this area. Right. Or at least you could be successful, but you're not going to enjoy it. That makes sense. Are there any examples that come to mind of someone who was uh, whom you were training and the huge difference that you saw from the time that they started to the time when they were sort of reasonably good? Uh, yeah, so there was, uh, there was a woman in my MBA program who I swear has scoliosis and just has a very peculiar posture, a very limiting kind of athletic ability just not not a natural athlete by any imagination um and we didn't turn her into an athlete that was that would that was a much longer term project but what we did is we taught her how hard she could push herself and that it's okay to hurt a little bit and to feel the pain and to see to see the tunnel right to go through the door occasionally and enter into that the black zone right and where you're in a whole world of pain that everything else is kind of drowning out and she got a lot stronger she got a lot faster she got more flexible she got more capable with just pure functional movement patterns of course there's a lot of work that she probably could still do but the idea was that if it wasn't for this you know, she was very unlikely ever to kind of do this on her own. And a lot of people need that strong push and that strong pull to help them along the way. Because most people, if they were self-motivated to do this, they wouldn't need it, right? They would, they would be self-educated. They would be self-motivated. They would be self-taught. That's not everybody. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, let's say someone does decide that, yes, he or she would like to work as a trainer. As you mentioned, that there are so many different kind of things that you can do, right? Like physical fitness is a very broad term. How would you help them assess what is that thing that they should be, that they should specialize in? You know, I, I don't know if that's really something that I would be best to do for them. I think part of it is them figuring out what they like and what they want to do. Now, I, I, can, I can definitely help them come up with like a functional base of kind of general physical preparedness. I can up your conditioning. I can up your strength. I can up your endurance, your flexibility. Um, I can make sure you know kind of these basic functional movement patterns so that you can do them in an intense, powerful way without getting hurt and that you're durable and you can kind of do them over time without chronic injury. But, you know, I'm the last person that should teach a swimmer how to swim better. I'm no swimming coach, and I'm the last person that should teach a skier how to ski better. I'm no skiing coach. Mm. And so that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff, if you know that you're sport-specific, you should obviously seek a sport-specific coach to push that skill set. Right, right, right. Now, I think what I was asking is that, let's say someone wants to become a physical fitness trainer. Is there a certain framework that they can use to think about uh, Okay, what is what is it that I should train people in? And, and of course, that you know that requires you to get exposed to a lot of different things, and you figuring out what is it that you're 
personally interested in but how would you go about thinking about it is it you know is there like i don't know, i don't really know much about physical fitness but is there a certain way you can think about this yeah i think one of it is to take kind of a an inventory of what you do now what you like um and what you're seeking to kind of build on in the future and then using that to kind of direct your efforts right and so if say you know say you're big into zumba that's kind of your passion and you want to be a zumba instructor then boom problem one solved you know exactly what you want to do problem two how do i become great at my job you find the people that are great at zumba and you talk to them you find resources to learn more right you you put the time and the hours in to getting coaching under your belt training clients run classes like do the work if you kind of achieve all those steps like you're going to be a pretty good zumba instructor i would say though that like i always want in terms of like an overall framework i'd say you always have to be open to change because there's a lot of people today who are doing what i like to call kind of the functional fitness stuff that 10 years ago we're doing bodybuilding and if they weren't comfortable to change they would still be doing bodybuilding today so you have to be open to constantly assessing the information available the science the technique the tactics you know and measuring that against where your goal is at that time because your goals are going to change and making sure that like you're still following the path that makes you personally satisfied fulfilled or scratches your itch so just be kind of open to change okay okay and is there something like a typical background for for working as a trainer yeah i think most fitness professionals uh hail from d1 or d2 athletics in college a lot of them get kinesiology uh, i can't pronounce this word basically sport specific or athletic specific degrees they get nutrition degrees and you know they just they like going to the gym they figure hey it's a it's a full time job mm-hmm. that's kind of that's i'd say that's probably the big driver but people come from all over the place right i would consider a yogi a physical trainer i mean obviously they don't follow the same route as other people that's and then there's important. like very sport specific people right so your big uh your big ski instructors they they give advice and they participate in physical training advice so they're physical training on the side in addition to being very sport specific but most of them come from skiing right just like football coaches coming from football um but yeah i mean i guess it broadly it's a wide range uh you also have the outliers like me who come from the military who just really miss that stuff <laughs> yeah and when people are you know they've made up their mind that okay you know i want to become a trainer and this is what i want to train people in how do you actually where can you even apply for a job so is it just gyms or are there sort of different kind of different kind of places where you can work as a trainer uh physical fitness is an incredibly fragmented industry so if you wanted to you could go and try and work for gold's gym you could go work for 24 hour fitness you could go work for perbs any of the gigantic chains or you could work for the local gym in your town or your neighborhood now if you wanted to get more specific and like focus in a different pathway you could also probably branch out and you could get into like crossfit and get crossfit certified and do that 
you could go get military athlete certified and go do that. You could there's literally a thousand different flavors because it is such a highly fragmented market. I mean, in fact, there's a lot of there's a lot of drama right now with having a national licensing board or authority over fitness professionals, which is sponsored by some and opposed by many within the industry. Okay. Can you talk but, more about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% kind of up to date on it, but the general gist is that there's a few professional bodies that represent kind of sports science and training. The ACSM, the ACSM is one. Okay. Uh, the Academy of Conditioning and Strength Medicine, I think. But correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Then uh, there's a few others that are like kind of professional personal training licensing organizations. So you can get, you take a test and you can get that, you get initials after your name, right? You're officially licensed. And then there's like the more niche players like Zumba, like CrossFit, like P90X, like intensity, right? They're more just like programs and don't purport to be kind of a national federal body. And the, the vast base, those fragmented players, are going to be hugely disadvantaged if there's a federal requirement of licensing. You know, it's like a, it's like having a license to be a barber. Right, right. Right? Like, that's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe that's just my libertarian and free market ideology coming out, but... No, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, I, I mean, there maybe there's an aspect of um, sort of is this person qualified to make sure that you're not going to injure someone or let someone injure themselves? Yeah, I, I strongly believe that trainers should be qualified, but I doubt that a federally mandated qualification standard right. is the right approach. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense, right? Um, okay. So that's my that's my play. Like, I think it's a. Let the private market own it, right? So if if Gold's Gym is going to hire a personal trainer, then Gold's Gym is responsible for the conduct and the efficiency and the safety of that personal trainer. And they should be they're financially incentivized to ensure that that personal trainer is as good as they need to be and no better and no worse. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. No, you're right. And what is the process of application like for uh, for when you're applying for a job at, say, a gym? So I have ideas, but, like, I don't know for sure. What I do know for sure is how the CrossFit side works, so maybe I'll just talk about that. Mm-hmm. So to become a CrossFit trainer, technically, you need to go and do a bunch of CrossFit certifications. In particular, there's a level one. I think nowadays it goes all the way up to level four. But level one is kind of the base level, and it's like, hey – you're certified, you're anointed by the CrossFit headquarters that you have sat through these two days of training and are indoctrinated enough that we trust you to represent us or something. So if you got your level one and go to your kind of nearest CrossFit gym and they have an open position for a trainer, you just say, hey, man, very, it's very, very, very like unofficial, not very systematic. You're just like, hey, you know, I'm interested in training, here's my background, let's talk. And they would evaluate you on a case-by-case basis. And, you know, if it works, they, if it I works, see. it works. I see. So, I mean... There's you... no, uh, yeah, there's no, I don't think anything, like, I know CrossFit isn't run, essentially, on the gym side, because it's an affiliate program. 
Right. Um, Gold's Gym. I honestly don't know. Okay. Okay. And I mean, so then are you applying with just your resume? You know, I think I think they would probably for the Gold's Gym thing. I think you probably would have a resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I doubt you'd have a resume for CrossFit. But like, imagine what that resume would look like. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Yeah, because it's like you have certifications, right? Uh, yeah. And other than that, like, what is it that you talk about in your application then? Like, whatever uh, form or shape it is. Well, it's a good question, right? So I think if you're... The fitness community is not that big within the within the niches. And so if you're like, you know, if you're an entry-level coach, like, you're not going to have much to put on a resume, you know, mm-hmm. except to, you know, prove that you did the certification here or there. Or say, hey, you know, I actually worked for a year or two training at this gym, and here are my references, and if you're like a high level, high level coach, your reputation is going to precede you. Like you're going to be known. Okay. So, so it's a lot of references then. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's it's hard to it's hard to like put your success as a coach on a resume, but references would probably go a lot farther. Right, right. Yeah, but let's say you're an entry-level coach, right? And it's a very competitive market. How can you stand out? Um, so within CrossFit, I think it's about showing up and being present and working with the owner, founder, whoever it is that you're trying to get hired by. Because you have the advantage here of this not being a gigantic, soulless company with a global presence in hundreds of locations, it's like it's CrossFit has one owner per gym. That's it. And so meet them, talk to them, get to know them. And if they like you and they think you're a good fit, they'll hire you. I see. Um, you don't need to go through the HR process. There is no HR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can understand. It's like a, it's, it's not such a structured industry as, you know, some, some exactly. more well-established things. I can understand that. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, I guess you're saying that apart from just pure credentials, a display of commitment and motivation is very important. Yeah, and potentially even, um, you know, what you were mentioning kind of before we got started, how a lot of the startups in San Francisco typically kind of expect you to kind of rub elbows with them for a little bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, what is it called again when you join on a temporary but contingent basis? Anyway. Like an internship? Uh, <laughs> kind of right but that's basically what you're doing right like you're yeah. uh you're on the bubble so yeah. you know show us what you've got we're gonna work with you for a while and if we like what we see we'll hire you full-time yeah but can you can you do that like i'm not an employee at the gym can i like when i show up at the gym and i'm looking to get hired as a coach what mm-hmm. do i do there i mean because i can't coach people who are coming there i'm not an employee there yeah I mean, so you have to demonstrate proficiency you have to start taking ownership and initiative the way it's going to work is that there's going to be uh, dependent. So it depends completely on the atmosphere and culture of the gym. Some some gyms are super tight knit, very very kind of flat, and oftentimes really talented, proficient, skilled, educated students can step up and teach in place of the true like hired trainer. And oftentimes. The athletes, or this is what they call the, the people who go to these gyms, the athletes are oftentimes better than the trainers at the actual application of the exercise. Okay. Like, they're stronger, they're faster, they're they're more powerful, they're more efficient. And the difference is the trainer might have 
you know, some additional education on programming, um, workout formation, nutrition, and just is like comfortable kind of running group classes. But oftentimes, like it's very flat. And so, you know, if you know what you're doing, you're educated, you've gone through the right steps, you can oftentimes just begin to kind of take on additional responsibility and then leverage that into a paid role. I see. Okay. No, that, that's very, that's good input because I think for a lot of people, it just might be sort of a black box, right? Like, how do I even get started? And Right. I mean, I mean, do people do anything creative apart from just going to gyms? Is there some other way that you can establish your personal brand? I mean, yeah. I mean, so outside of working for somebody else, you can always just work for yourself. A lot of people, this is why it's so fragmented. A lot of people are one-person shops where you kind of create your own personal training brand and you're not even associated with the gym if you go to a gym. Sometimes you just pay the gym a share of your personal training revenue for oh, the benefit okay. of being able to use the premises. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Otherwise, you can just go and do boot camp style workouts where you go into parks or public places and do your workout without bothering to pay a gym the cut. Right, right, right. Um, and that's actually, I mean, that's a huge business. There's some bigger players there, some bigger boot camp players, and there's some really small one person kind of, you know, not too different than what I was doing. That range of it, yeah. Yeah, and I've seen some trainers use some fairly innovative techniques like uh, social media, for example. So they'll they'll post photographs on Instagram of like different poses and how to do things. And yeah. if they start getting followers, then I think that is something that I've seen people do or, or like YouTube channels with videos. Oh, yeah, totally. Workouts. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're interested in this space and you want to start building your personal brand, uh, like you need to own your name across the entire spectrum of social media and web-based expression. Like you need to, you need to be putting out content on your blog or your webpage. You need to be tied in with Facebook and have a Facebook page that represents your brand. You need to have a Twitter account that represents your brand. You need to have an Instagram account that represents your brand. A YouTube channel helps. And you need to be like putting out really good, compelling media all the time. Right. That would be like number one recommendation. Right. Because right. you are you are your brand. And if you're not owning it, people just aren't going to know who you are. And you're missing a huge opportunity for inbound. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this one question, and I, I realize that I'm taking a lot of your time, so I'm going to keep it short, but I wanted to ask this in the beginning, which is that, is there a, a process that you follow when you're training someone? Like, you know, sort of the stages, like stage one, this is what I do, and then stage two, this is what I do. Is there something like that? Nothing, nothing that's cookie cutter, but broadly speaking, the first step of any time that you're training somebody new is you evaluate, Right. It's like, hey, like just I want you to show me these different things. I'm going to evaluate your flexibility. I'm going to evaluate your movement patterns. I'm going to evaluate, you know, your health. I'm also going to have ask you about things that I can't actually see with my own eyes. Like, do you have any medical problems? Do you have are you at risk for a heart attack? Because like that's something I really need to know. <laughs> do you have scoliosis? Hopefully, I'll be able to see that. But occasionally, it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what you're doing is kind of an end-to-end assessment on their capabilities and potential like on the fitness track and health and so the goal with that session is really to just kind of understand them so that when you start training that you're doing periodization and progression 
so that you're not breaking them and you're not wasting their time. But you're giving them something that can challenge them and drive beneficial adaptations within a comfortable risk reward kind of trade-off. Right, right, right. All right. Okay, Sean, this was super helpful. Very, very insightful. Do you have any other advice that you'd like to share with anyone who is interested in becoming a trainer? Uh, you know, all I would say is it's a very crowded market. Find your niche. Find your niche and aggressively attack it. And make sure that it's something that you're super passionate about because it's going to take time, it's education, and it should be more to you than just a job. Like you need to be dedicated to be successful. That and like clean up your nutrition because we don't talk about that nearly enough and nutrition is actually most of the battle. Oh yeah, that's right. Right, right, right. So it's not just the physical exercise but also the nutrition element to it. Uh, yeah, so you know, food is medicine and everything you put in your body has some impact one way or another on your functioning. And if you withhold food from the human body we begin to starve and eventually die. If you put in the wrong food, our hormonal response is not the way that it's supposed to be and we get unhealthy and we die. So like, <laughs> the, the food part is so important that if the question was, hey, here's my, my aunt is sedentary, she's overweight, she you know, doesn't participate in any athletic endeavors. She's not really getting exercise. I mean, she eats like crap. And I would say, like, oh, you can only do one thing. Fix the food. Fix the food 100% of the time because yeah. it's more important. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. All right. Thanks a lot, John. This was extremely helpful. Uh, I took up a lot of your time, but I think this has been great. Thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. It was great talking to you. And I, I hope this helps. Uh, and it's not, you got to, you know, let me know when you want to go work out. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, the video on your website is a little scary, but uh, maybe we can do like a like a baby program for me first. But yeah, let's talk about that. No, we go 100% all the time, every time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Of course, we'll make it work. Okay, all right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. So that was Sean with a very interesting account of what it's like to work in the physical fitness space. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. It is called Learn, Educate, Discover. If you have any feedback to share with us or if you have ideas on professions that we should include in our upcoming episodes, please do share your ideas with us. You can email us at learneducatediscover at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. Show notes from today's episode will be posted to our blog. You can find our blog at medium.com forward slash at LED underscore curator. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next one, be well and bye-bye.